From KTOO, I'm Katie Anastas with a look at local and statewide news. For Juneau homeowners who were affected by August's glacial outburst flood, recovery aid from familiar safety nets like insurance and the federal and state government has fallen short of expectations. While some state disaster aid is available, members of one Juneau homeowners association discovered they're not eligible for it. Now they're taking on more than a million dollars in repairs on their own. KTOO's Anna Canny has the story. This summer's record-breaking glacial outburst flood nearly sent a condo building on Riverside Drive into the Mendenhall River. The morning after the disaster, John Dietrich, treasurer of the Riverside Condominium Homeowners Association, saw the building hanging over the edge of the riverbank, and he called a meeting of the HOA board. It seemed very precarious where it was sitting. So we acted immediately and we authorized emergency use of our reserves, which was never intended for something like this. Money collected from residents for routine maintenance like trash pickup or the occasional paint job became a disaster relief fund instead. There was enough money to stabilize the precarious building, but that was just a fraction of the necessary repair work. The building needs a new foundation, and erosion left three more buildings vulnerable to future floods. The cost to fix those things is estimated at more than a million dollars. But for residents of the condos, recovery aid has fallen short of expectations. FEMA denied disaster aid for flood victims in Juneau. Insurance companies denied their claims, too. And though a state disaster declaration freed up some money, Riverside condo members aren't eligible for it. That's because the way Alaska state law treats HOAs is incompatible with the way state aid is distributed. You're stuck paying, but you can't put your head out for some more money. That was a surprise to Brenna Heights. She hasn't been able to get into her unit on the top floor of the damaged building since the flood. But when she applied for disaster assistance from the state, she was denied. State assistance can help to cover repair costs for property that's damaged in a natural disaster. But the state told Heights that the damage to her building was not her responsibility. It's the HOA's responsibility. But in order for them to fix that, they need money. And that comes from us, the owners. And I am not eligible for homeowners aid, even though like that money is coming out of my pocket. Under state laws, the HOA is treated more like a nonprofit business than a group of individuals. So residents like Heights can't access most forms of individual state aid. Alaska state law also requires that homeowners associations share responsibility for common elements. In this case, that's all of the Riverside condo buildings. So even though most of the nine condo buildings were untouched by the flood, all 51 homeowners are on the hook for repair costs, more than $20,000 per person. I was naive about the actual amount of money it would take, you know, the first few days after. It was just total shock. Heights and some of her neighbors are relying on donations from family, friends, and the community at large. Heights' post-flood GoFundMe raised just enough money to cover her share of repairs. Without those donations, Heights said she would have had to take out a private loan. And that's what many in the undamaged buildings are doing. Other owners, like Joanna Forst, took money out of their savings accounts. Forst owns a unit in an undamaged building that sits along the riverbank, which she rents out. She said that her obligation to pay the cost of repairs came as a shock at first. That's a lot of money out of everybody's pocket. Yet, that's what I signed into, and that was a hard pill to swallow. Forrest was able to make the payment in full. But as a stay-at-home mom, she said that money was an important supplement to her husband's income. My spending has basically been cut to absolutely no spending. In the end, she said repair work felt like a worthy investment to protect her unit from future flooding. According to Dietrich, 
about three-quarters of Riverside condo residents have already made their payments, while the rest try to figure out how to come up with the money. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. It's not unusual in this state for one arm of the government to wrestle with the other. But when one sues the other, as federal wildlife managers did over the state's management of subsistence fishing, that takes the fight to a new level. The Alaska Federation of Natives has sided with the federal government and made its case to tribal leaders at a conference held in Anchorage yesterday, a day ahead of the start of its annual convention. As KNBA's Rhonda McBride reports, the tribal conference has set the stage for a bigger conversation at AFN. Yupik elders in southwest Alaska have a saying that if you fight over fish, they'll go away. And after decades of battles between the state and federal government, they seem to be right. This latest fish fight involves the Kuskokwim River, and as the salmon runs dwindle, the battles seem to get bigger. Since the 1970s, the two branches of government have wrestled over whether rural Alaskans have a priority for subsistence in times of shortage. Battles, attorney Heather Kendall Miller says, Alaska natives have fought in the courts and won. And now, old issues have returned with a vengeance. So unfortunately, we're back where we were in the 90s. And that's not a great place to be in, simply because all it does it fights for the established system, and that system is dual management, which has never been sufficient to protect subsistence uses. As federal and state managers have feuded over a rural subsistence priority and whether those rights extend to the state's navigable waters, Kendall Miller says the problems are much worse now. It's a emergency, uh, huge proportions out there. Testimony at the AFN Tribal Conference from subsistence harvesters like Elizabeth Kuchak prove her point. When we gotta work hard just for gas below, and I just go home with just a few fish from my freezer, and then when I share with elders that can't make it out, and I can't share, that hurts too. The fish that I eat is not a state fish, it's not a federal fish, but a human fish. Tom Tilden, a subsistence hunter and fisherman from the Bristol Bay region, says it's time for Alaska Natives to once again rally and fight to protect the federal rural subsistence priority. We don't want to hunt and eat and gather and be hunted by one of the organizations that has supposedly jurisdiction over our right to eat. We don't want to go back to that way of life. Kendall Miller says a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in favor of a moose hunter's right to use a hovercraft in waters that run through a federal wildlife refuge is being used by the state to bolster its arguments against federal control over subsistence fisheries. Kendall Miller told the tribal gathering that while the federal government's lawsuit could go all the way to the high court, there's a lot of risk involved. We've got some strong arguments, which I hope will prevail. But as a realist, I know that this court is very fractured. And it's not a place that any litigant really wants to be if you're concerned about 
rights. AFN's President Julie Kitka says Congress may not be much help in defending federal laws that protect a rural priority for subsistence because they are also fractured with deep political divisions and preoccupied with wars and big issues like climate change. Tribal leaders were told it may be an old battle, but to brace for new realities. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, an annual commemoration of people with disabilities in the workforce. Advocates say that while it's important to recognize the strengths and talents of people with disabilities in the workplace, it's also critical to provide necessary resources. KDLL's Hunter Morrison reports. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 13% of Americans live with a physical or intellectual disability. People with disabilities have nearly double the unemployment rate than those without. Barriers such as a lack of accommodations or bias in the hiring process greatly contribute. There's also just like a lot of shame and stigma wrapped up in having a disability and disclosing that you have a disability. This is Maggie Winston, program director at the Independent Living Center in Soldatna. The organization promotes independence and quality of life for individuals living with disabilities. Earlier this month, Governor Mike Dunleavy signed a proclamation recognizing the importance of employing people with disabilities in Alaska. Winston says although it's a step in the right direction, more needs to be done. The recognition is good, but it's more than just recognition. There's policies that need to be in place. There's barriers that need to be brought down. And so there's sort of the uh, systemic work that's more important than just recognition. Winston, who has a disability herself, says this includes increasing access to services and accommodations in the workplace. While the state of Alaska banned sub-minimum wages for people with disabilities, she says many still require a certain income to pay for day-to-day -day accommodations and services. This year's theme for National Disability Employment Awareness Month focuses on advancing access and equity. In Soldatna, I'm Hunter Morrison.